Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Criminology is a true crime podcast that may contain discussion about violent or disturbing topics. Listener discretion is advised. everyone and welcome to episode 70 of the criminology podcast i'm mike ferguson and this is mike morford mr morford how are you i'm doing good getting the uh christmas stuff ready to go and excited about that how about you yeah no i'm great so we're post thanksgiving we're heading into the christmas holiday for everyone that celebrates that it's a good time of year man but it's it's a busy time of year yeah, it's pretty hectic. We just went out and got our Christmas tree, and our daughter talked us into putting up a uh, a white flock tree, and my wife and I were a little bit skeptical of it, but now that it's up, it's, it's beautiful, so we're, we're What is a white flock up. tree? So the flock tree is is the tree that's like almost painted. It's coated with uh, what looks like snow, and you can get different colors on there. We have a white one, so it looks like snow on a, on a Christmas tree. Mm, uh, in your house. In our house, yeah, and it doesn't melt. It's like caked onto the <laughs> to the tree, but it looks like real snow. And then once you decorate it, it, it looks really nice. Cool, yeah. No, it, it's 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 a great time of year, man. There's a lot of stuff going on, especially for you having younger kids. I mean, my kids are a lot older. They still have fun, but yeah, the younger kids, man, they get so excited that Christmas morning, all everything leading up to it. It's cool. Yeah, my little guy is afraid of Santa Claus still, so I don't know how <laughs> how that's going to be when we go to the mall and get his pictures taken. But other than that, yep. they're re- they're ready. I don't know why, but a lot of kids are terrified of the mall Santa. All right, Morph, we have some new Patreon supporters, so let's go ahead and give our shout outs. We had Kate Gallus, Jeff Nowak, T Bug, Sam Prezko, Faith Barnett, Emily Moe. Dwayne Burke and Meredith Slaughter. So a lot of great new support. We very much appreciate it. Thanks everyone for all that amazing support. It goes a long way to helping us keep putting these episodes out. We appreciate it. And if anyone out there is considering supporting criminology on Patreon, you can do so by visiting patreon.com slash criminology. All right, Morph, let's jump right into this episode. We're talking about Jamie Grissom. It was on December 7th, 1971, that 16 year old Jamie Rochelle Grissom disappeared from Vancouver, Washington, and she's never been seen since. Authorities believe that Jamie may have been the first victim of a convicted killer, but really a suspected serial killer. This guy's name is Warren Leslie Forrest. Forrest was convicted in 1979 of the murder of Krista K. Blake, but police believe that he's most likely responsible for a number of other disappearances and murders, including Jamie Grissom's. When Jamie vanished, she left behind a younger sister named Star, who's been wondering ever since that day what happened to her older sister. Star joined us to discuss her sister's case, and you'll hear from her throughout this episode. Jamie Rochelle Grissom was born on November 11, 1955. She has a younger sister named Star. When Jamie and Star were little, they were placed in foster care. They had been taken from their mother, and their father was in prison. Despite the breakup of their family, the two girls remained close, and Star looked up to her older sister, sometimes thinking of her as more of a mother figure. Well, since I was three and she was four, we were like 13 months apart. So uh, my mother basically had a nervous breakdown. And so she just wasn't capable and, and they took us away. 
for neglect. And we, there were uh, other siblings, but we didn't know them as when we were children. I met some of them in my 20s. So she never got to get reunited with our mother, which we always hoped for that when we were children. Eventually, our mother lost total rights to us when I was like eight and Jamie was nine. And so we got set up for adoption like three or four times. But we had a pact between us that you either took both of us or you didn't take either of us. That's kind of how we were. They moved us quite a bit. And like, so our very first foster home, I think we were probably there almost two years from the time I was three till I was five. Then they moved us to another one and we were there like a year and they had to move to Colorado and they wanted to take us with them. But back then you couldn't move foster children from state to state and they really didn't have the money to adopt us. They would have had they had the money. And then I went to live with my kindergarten teacher. Actually, I think briefly both Jamie and I went to live there. And then she left, Jamie left to another foster home, and I stayed there for a while. I mean, I could go on and on about the different ones, but there was one particular one. I think I got there when I was going on eight, and Jamie was nine, and then we loved her a lot. Her name was Mama Grace. We called her that anyway. And we went there off and on, and I think... We may have stayed a year the first time, and then we got set up for adoption in Seattle. And and then we came back, and then we stayed, you know, a year or so more. And then she was old. She had health issues. She was in her 70s. And so we also got set up for adoption again, so we left. And then we came back briefly, and then we left again. And then we uh, were gone like two years, actually longer. We didn't come back there until uh, that last summer. We both had the opportunity to go back there together and be in the same place because sometimes we were separated. There wasn't a home that could take both of us. I left my foster home, which I really loved, the one I was staying at, the, the Gillises. And I left there, though, to go stay with Mama Grace again because she could take both of us. And Jamie was already there. And so had I not done that, we wouldn't have had that last summer together. Jamie was a well-liked and popular student at Fort Vancouver High School in Vancouver, Washington. She was very outgoing. She worked hard at her studies and was set to graduate a year early. She loved rock music and wrote poetry. She was also a talented artist. And Jamie was a member of the 4-H club. Jamie was very outgoing. And she she had many talents. Like she could write poetry really well. She had beautiful cursive writing. I always envied that. And she could draw really well. And she actually had won like a $500 scholarship for her artwork. And that was quite a bit back in the 1970s. And, yeah, she was just multi-talented that way, very artistic. Uh, My last memories were of wrapping Christmas presents together. And, you know, she did them very fancy with curled ribbon and all that. And they were perfectly wrapped, like a professional would do it, you know. She actually loved... Joe Cocker, Credence Clearwater, she loved the Bee Gees. She loved Elvis. Yeah, she loved uh, rock music. Uh, That last summer, we went to a few dances out in the country at a grange called Hawkinson Grange Hall. Yeah, those are some of my favorite memories of her. And, of course, she always, as my big sister, she protected me. And, you know, she would pick on me as we got a little bit older, like when I was around 10, especially because my foster mother said, you know, you don't need to let Jamie boss you around. She's not your boss. I go, she's not? (laughs) Because I kind of thought she was, you know. We argued a little bit after that, but that's normal. But we went everywhere together that last summer, the first time I went 
horseback riding was with her because that was one of her big things. She was an avid horseback rider and she loved horses. She was mature for her age and very intelligent. On Tuesday, December 7th, 1971, Jamie left her home on Northeast 58th Street in Vancouver to catch the bus to school. She only had a couple of classes that day and planned on being home by 2 p.m. She'd gone out to the bus, which was at the end of our driveway. They picked her up, and she came back in like 10 minutes later, and it was very cold, and she mentioned how cold it was out there, and she came in and checked on her foster mother, Grace, because she had a bad heart, and she wanted to see how she was doing, and she was very caring that way, and probably I at the time was more self-centered, and <laughs> She went to check on her, and then she came back into the kitchen, and we sat down, and and she said, make sure you tell Grace that I'm walking home from school. I only have two classes, because Fort Vancouver High School was like college. Some days you might only have two classes, or three, and they called it a modular schedule. So I said, okay, I'll be sure to tell it. And she said, I should be around, I should be home about 1.30 or 2. I said, okay. And I didn't see Grace in the morning, so I didn't want to wake her up. So I went to junior high, and I got home like at four. And I said, you know, after a few minutes, I noticed Jamie wasn't there. And I said, where's Jamie? And Grace said, I don't know. She hasn't come home from school yet. And I said, well, that's very strange because she told me to specifically tell you she would be home by about one thirty or 2 and that she was walking home. And... She never did come home, and, and the darker it got, the more I knew something really bad had happened, because that was just not like her. Star knew that her older sister hadn't run off. There were no reasons that anyone could think of that she would run away. She got along well with her foster mom, and she and Star were very close. She also had a savings account that remained untouched after her disappearance. So together with their foster mom, Star reached out for help. I actually called our caseworker. She had been our caseworker since I was 12. Jamie was 13. And I called her and she immediately knew something was wrong. And she went down to the police station that very night and she tried to file a missing persons report. Well, back then it was 30 days. You could not file for 30 days, which was crazy. And... So she filed some kind of report, you know, just like a informational kind of report at 1030 that night. And then, of course, a month later, they, they filed the official missing persons report. But, you know, I called, I called everybody, all her friends at the time I had. I think I had her phone book, her address book. And I called everybody. Nobody knew where she might be or talked to her or anything. At the time, I don't think they, they took it that seriously because they didn't understand why we were foster children. I guess foster children had a stigma then, and they probably still do, unfortunately, but I think people are more aware that it's not the child's fault. But I think there was a lot of that. But my caseworker luckily knew something was really wrong, and and her husband, he was like, one of the higher-ups in the juvenile hall. So they both, if it hadn't been for them, I don't know if they would have taken it as seriously, but they did do some searches with search dogs for her, and they talked to a lot of people. But it was like she just vanished. And Morv, I think this is something that we hear a lot of in these older cases that we talk about. Maybe she ran off. We also hear you have to wait a certain period of time before you can report someone missing. Those two things seem to be ubiquitous from episodes that we do, you know, about disappearances, especially from around the 70s. I think some of that has changed today, but but when you look back during that time period, okay, you could say it's one thing to take that approach with adults. You have to wait a certain period of time. You know, they're just out partying. They're out doing whatever they're doing. They'll be back. They're not really missing. But to do that with a child during that, what we know is a very 
crucial early stage of someone going missing, that's tough, man. I just, it, it's hard to think that that was commonplace back then, but it was. And in this case, they were not allowed to report Jamie missing for 30 days, 30 days. That is an unbelievable amount of time when you're talking about a 16 year old girl. And I think it's important to mention, too, based on what we know about Jamie, her character, what her friends and family had to say about her, she wasn't the kind of person that would just run off and leave everything behind. She still had money in a savings account that hadn't been touched. So it was very out of character for her for to do something like that. So right away, the family feared the worst. Yeah, I think it's a good point to make, right? There are some people that have a history of running off for periods of time, then they come back. Jamie didn't have that. So I think her family right away, as most families would, thought something's not right here and we need help. Well, you reach out for that help and you're told we can't do anything for 30 days. That has to be an unbelievably horrible sinking feeling. I think what makes it even worse was the impression that Starr got from the police that they didn't take Jamie missing very seriously because she had grown up in the foster care system. And apparently in their eyes, that somehow may have lessened her value. I think that's really sad and just a reminder of what the thinking was back then about certain kinds of people in society and how their cases were dealt with. It wasn't until almost six months after Jamie went missing that in May 1972, her identification, purse, and some of her personal belongings were found in a wooded area, alongside a rural road outside Battleground, Washington. This is an area in the Dole Valley area of northern Clark County, about 20 miles from her home in Vancouver. Later, police would search this area looking for any sign of Jamie's remains, but found nothing. And to this day, Jamie's body has never been found. After finding Jamie's belongings, the authorities decided that Jamie probably hadn't run away, and later came to think that she may have actually been the first victim of a suspected serial killer who they were investigating. And more if I think you and I know, obviously, and, and everybody listening knows that the state of Washington is no stranger to serial killers. We've talked about a few of them in some of our episodes. And really, if you think about it, some of the most infamous serial killers operated at at least some point in their crimes in the state of Washington. I mean, we're talking about Gary Ridgway, the Green River Killer, Ted Bundy, child killer Wesley Allen Dodd, Robert Yates, who confessed to killing 13 women in Spokane, Walla Walla, and Skagit counties. These are some really bad guys and really infamous. I mean, in, when you think about the pantheon of, of serial killers, and then you talk about this Warren Leslie Forrest, convicted killer, but thought by authorities to be a serial killer who may have killed up to seven women. And part of that count may very well include Jamie. Warren Leslie Forrest was born in Vancouver, Washington in 1949 and had spent time in the U.S. Army in Vietnam. In 1970, he attended the North American School of Conservation in Newport Beach, California. He eventually got married and had two children. Between 1971 and 1974, Forrest worked for the Clark County Parks and Recreation Department. He lived with his family in Battleground, Washington, 16 miles northeast of Vancouver, and drove a blue van. On the surface, Warren Forrest seemed to be a normal family guy. But as we all know, sometimes looks can be deceiving. This would prove to be the case with Warren Forrest. On July 11, 1974, 20-year-old Krista K. Blake disappeared. She was last seen in Vancouver, climbing into a blue van near the intersection of K Street and 29th Street. Witnesses reported that the van was driven by a young white male. Krista told a friend the man was going to give her a ride into Portland, and there were other witnesses that saw Krista, saw her with this man, as well as the blue van, in the Louisville Park area sometime around her disappearance. Two years to the day after Krista vanished, 
a couple of hikers found her body in a shallow grave in a Clark County Park maintenance depot on Tooks Mountain. This is east of Battleground, Washington. Her hands were tied behind her back. Her cause of death was never determined, but three small puncture holes and a heavy accumulation of blood were found on the part of her shirt that covered the chest. On July 17, 1974, less than a week after Krista Blake went missing, and about 15 miles north in the town of Ridgefield, 15-year-old Norma Gates was sitting on the side of the road smoking a cigarette when a man in a blue van pulled up and started chit-chatting. He asked her if she wanted a ride. Norma's instinct told her to leave, but she didn't and accepted the ride. The decision to accept that ride was one that Norma would regret. Here's Norma in her own words. This audio clip of Norma talking about what happened to her is provided courtesy of the Columbian News out of Vancouver. And then I walked up the main street and out of town. Then I saw this van come out of town. And he did that whole double take, brake check thing. And I thought to myself then, I should just get up and walk away, just go home. I didn't do it fateful decision, but I didn't do it. I went up to the van, and he was asking questions. Do you want to go for a ride was the first one. Well, no, thank you. I, I don't go for rides. And do you, ha- do you have a cigarette, or do you know where I can get some, some pot? Something like that. Conversation to keep me there, because I'd started to walk away once. And I said, well, I, I have to go. I've got to go home. He said, well, I'll give you a ride home. Stupid get into the van with a stranger when you're not supposed to, and that's what I did. Put a knife to my throat. He tied me, cut my bra off, used it for a gag. I can't tell you how long we drove around. All I know was I was terrified, and I knew that bad things were going to happen to me. Dropped me between two trees, and then he left, and he came back, and he looped a rope around my head and tied it to the tree, and then he slugged me in the face, in the eye. He hit me so hard, I swear to God, I saw stars. I came to some barbed wire fence, and I laid down and went under the fence. No houses, nothing around at all. I heard noise in the woods behind me. I bet I stood there for two hours after the sound stopped and didn't move, just waiting, scared to death. He was waiting to hear me move. I stood up the whole night with my back against the post, trying to get the rope off my wrist. I decided I needed to move and get out of there, so I went underneath that barbed wire fence and I hopped about three steps and I fell. My feet got tangled up in the, the bushes and I just stayed. I couldn't, I didn't have the strength to get up. Made my way out of the bushes. It was the parks department. Of course, I didn't know that at the time. Door was locked, couldn't get it open. Thought about breaking the glass, didn't know how. The clock said 10 minutes to seven. So I just sat down on the step. And I didn't sit there very long, just a few minutes. And I heard a vehicle coming up the drive, out of sight. And I wanted to just get up and run. I didn't have any place to go. And I think at that moment I gave up. I just thought, whatever. If it's him, it's him. There's nothing I can do. I can't do anything else. Small pickup truck pulled into the drive, into the parking lot, parked across from me. I guess I was pretty beat up. My eye was black, the, the white was red where the blood vessels was all broken. I had, I had chewed half my lips off, trying to get the ropes off. He could see, I think, that I was tied. And he just came up and with this look of puzzlement on his face, like, what the heck? And I just started crying. And I sat forward and showed him my wrists and he cut the ropes off. The police came, I was in shock. My night of terror was over. So you heard Norma describe that horrible ordeal that she went through. And after she was able to escape the man that attacked her, she made it to the county parks building that she talked about in that segment. Luckily, the man that found Norma wasn't her assailant. Rather, he was a Clark County Parks employee. That employee helped Norma and summoned the police. Norma gave police a description of her attacker, but after searching the area, They didn't find him. The spot in the woods where Norma was tied before making her escape was just 167 feet from where Krista Blake's body would be found two years later. And to me, Morph, this is very, very eerie. We often talk about killers, you know, revisiting spots, using 
the same dump sites that happens, but it makes the hair on my arm stand up to think about 167 feet. That is about half of a football field to put it in perspective. That's how close that is. And how many cases have we talked about over the course of this podcast and our other podcast where these killers have a tendency to have these little clusters of victims that they sort of place there and who knows, maybe they some of them come back to them and, and spend time there at that scene after the fact. To be honest with you, I think it's one of the reasons why some killers do tend to use an area because you know, we know there's part of their brain that is compelling them to come back and let's face it, do whatever it is that they're going to do. It would make much more logical sense to, as a killer, dispose of bodies in a more dispersed pattern, right? To clump them up. That's not smart. But a lot of times, you know, these guys aren't thinking that way. They're thinking, okay, this is easy for me. I'm going to come back and revisit these bodies. I'm going to keep them somewhat close together. I think it it just kind of gives you some type of insight into how their minds work. Some of them. Now, some killers are different. They're smarter. They Or they don't have that aspect of their crimes. And they are able to maybe think a little bit further ahead, I guess, for the lack of a better term. I think in a way it helps police sometimes because as they fan out through these areas looking for clues and trying to see what they can find, they sometimes find evidence or other clues or sometimes even other bodies right there. And and that gives them more to work with. Well, and as an investigator or an investigative team, what are you going to think? When you find what would ultimately be two bodies 167 feet apart, is that a coincidence? (laughs) Probably not. Isn't it amazing that we live in a world where you can get anything you need when you need it right to your door? With DoorDash, you can get pretty much anything. Whether you're sick and you don't feel like getting out of the house, DoorDash has you covered. Maybe you're at a party and you run out of alcohol or ice or something like that, but you want to keep that party going. You need a little assist. DoorDash has you covered. Sometimes my wife and I, we just don't feel like making dinner. We're tired. We want to watch a show. That's when we hit DoorDash. DoorDash makes it easy to get the food that you want without all of the hassle. And I'm always amazed when I go on DoorDash by the selection. You know, whether you're in the mood for fast food or something a little fancy, maybe a nice steak. I know around me, they have just about everything. The hardest part for my wife and I is deciding on what we both want. That's the only trouble we ever have. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. Must be 21 and over to order alcohol. Drink responsibly. Alcohol available only in select markets. On October 1st, 1974, a few months after Norma was attacked, 20-year-old Daria Whiteman was approached by a man in Camas, Washington, who offered her money to model for some photographs, and she took him up on his offer. Daria got into the man's blue van, and he drove her to a remote area in the Washington Park area of Portland. He took her into the back of the van and pulled out a knife. After he subdued her, he tied her arms behind her back and drove her to Lacamas Park in Clark County, about 25 miles away. Once he was there, he took Daria into a wooded area, shot her 5 to 10 times in the chest with a 177 caliber dart gun, and then raped her. He choked Daria until she passed out, then stabbed her 5 times in the chest, covered her with debris, and left her for dead. But amazingly... Despite the brutal attack on her, Daria regained consciousness and escaped. So we talk about different calibers of guns and different weapons in a lot of these episodes, but I think this is the first time we've talked about dark guns. What do you know about dark guns, Mike? No, I, I don't know a lot, to be, to be honest with you, but I do agree that I cannot remember ever talking in an episode about an assailant using a dart gun. And again, I didn't even know they came in calibers. I mean, to me, when I think of a dart gun, I think of something that, you know, animal control or some agency like that uses to sedate an animal. 
looks somewhat like a gun. I'm thinking probably powered by a CO2 cartridge, fires a dart that is usually tipped with some kind of fast-acting sedative. Yeah, I wonder how lethal those those weapons can be. Well, I don't think they're designed to be lethal at all. One thing I take away from it is despite all these injuries and the brutal attack on her, that she managed to survive. That's amazing. No, it really is. Because my thought, Morph, is that this person thought he had killed this woman. You know, that's when you hear the term left for dead, and that's what you said, I believe that's true. I believe that this person thought they had inflicted so much damage upon this woman that there was no way she could survive. But like you said, amazing that she was able to regain consciousness, go get help, and ultimately survive. So she did have to go find help, though. She was very badly in need of medical attention. When police were finally able to question her the next day, this was October 2nd, she was able to describe both the attack and her attacker. She was shown a police lineup and she identified Warren Forrest as the man who had attacked her. Forrest was arrested immediately. Police seized a dart gun, darts, twine, some of Daria's clothing, and other evidence from his blue van. But despite Forrest being arrested in early October 1974, and despite all of this evidence, he was acquitted at trial in 1975 on the grounds of insanity. So instead, he was sentenced to be detained at the Western State Hospital, a large inpatient psychiatric facility in Lakewood, Washington. On October 12, 1974, about a week and a half after Forrest was arrested, a hunter found a skull in some woods 14 miles northeast of Vancouver. When police searched the area, they found the rest of the body, as well as another set of human remains. One skeleton was quickly identified right away as belonging to 18-year-old Carol Louise Valenzuela from Camas, Washington. She was reported missing two months earlier on August 4th by her husband, Robert. The Clark County Medical Examiner used dental charts to identify her body. The other skeleton, which was larger than Carol's, couldn't be identified. The unidentified victim was a white female, about 17 to 23 years old, 5'5 five five to 5'7 five inches tall, around 125 pounds with dark brown hair. This young woman's body had been dumped roughly about one month before Carol Valenzuela and it was determined that she most likely died from suffocation. But her body would remain unidentified for the next 40 years. The bodies of these two women were found very close to where Jamie Grissom's belongings had been found. Starr had always held out hope that her sister might be alive. But when these bodies were found, that hope was dashed. They had found her belongings way out in rural northeast Clark County. It's pretty rural even today. And they had found the belongings like up the road from where they found these two girls' remains. They were like up a hill off of the road. And I knew at that point that she was just never coming back. I knew that. And prior to that, you know, I used to get her Christmas presents and write her letters. Because, you know, I wanted her to know I didn't forget her. But I knew at that point regarding these two girls' remains, she wasn't coming back. And it was at that point they started linking her disappearance to a guy named Warren Forrest. Before Warren Forrest was released from the state hospital, police arrested him for Krista K. Blake's murder, and he was ordered to stand trial. The trial took place in April 1979, and in a rare move, Judge Robert McMullen brought jurors in from nearby Kelso in Cowlitz County instead of moving the trial from Clark County. He did this because the case had received a lot of public and media attention, and he wanted to ensure a fair trial. Both Norma Gates and Daria Whiteman, who had recovered from their wounds, bravely testified against Forrest. The jury eventually found Forrest guilty of Krista's murder, and Judge McMullen sentenced him to life in prison. Forrest later appealed his conviction but in September 1982, the State Court of Appeals in Tacoma affirmed the first-degree murder conviction 
from the original trial. According to one source, a Clark County Sheriff's Office document from 1978 formally links Forrest to Jamie's disappearance. Authorities believe Jamie was his first victim, but Forrest has never admitted to killing Jamie, and he hasn't said where her body is. Almost 30 years later, in 2006, Nikki Costa joined the Clark County Medical Examiner's Office. Her main job was to help perform autopsies in Clark, Clickitat, and Shamania counties, as well as run the office. But the agency was small. It was overwhelmed with unidentified remains. So the medical examiner, Dennis Wickham, assigned Nikki eight cases of unidentified remains. She was tasked with trying to identify them. The 1974 Jane Doe found with Carol Valenzuela was one of them. But there was a problem. As Nikki began to work on this assignment that she had been given, she couldn't locate the remains. She called several agencies, including the FBI and the Green River Task Force. She also called some forensic anthropologists to see if anybody had the bones. The one that was never identified, that one always haunted me because I thought, well, maybe it's her. Even though they said the dental records ruled her out, that's why they said, no, it's not her. But it always bothered me that she was unidentified. And then in like 2005, I asked for DNA testing to be done just to rule Jamie out definitively because they really didn't have good dental records of Jamie. They just had some notes from the dentist. And so I think I waited for a year for those DNA results that came back that it wasn't Jamie, but they didn't know who the girl was, you know. And then they, right around the, oh, right around the same time, they did a facial reconstruction of this unknown girl. And I think that's when I requested a DNA test because people started calling me. They saw it on the news and they said, you know, you really should get a DNA test. It looks like a lot like Jamie. And the initial uh, reconstruction did look like her. And so that's what came, that's partly why I asked for the DNA test. I was talking to the detective at the time that was working on Jamie's case. I, you know, I asked him, what about this uh, unknown girl? Can you do some DNA testing on her? I said, can't you do a DNA test on her and find out who she is? And my friends said, you, you know, if they don't do it, you know, dig her up and find out who she is, we need to get a petition going. So, you know, I kind of told the detective that, and it was at that point that he told me this girl's remains were lost. They'd been lost for over 30 years. And that was just like, I, it was like, that really bothered me. It was like, he kicked me in the stomach, you know, just knocked the wind out of me. I thought, how could you lose her remains? You know, how, how could, not he personally, but how could her remains be lost? And Morph, isn't this something else that we see in a lot of these old unsolved cases? You know, people don't give up on them. They're working them sometimes many years later. But what happens a lot of the time is things are missing. I mean, you know, you have reports missing, missing evidence, things like that. I don't know how many times, though, we've seen where the the bodies, the remains of victims are found to be missing. Yeah, that's something that hopefully doesn't happen too often. I could see misfiling a, a file and putting it in the wrong drawer or accidentally throwing it out. But a body, that's that to me is is hopefully rare. Yeah, I think we've seen in cases where entire you know files of evidence have been burned in a fire. Well, okay, back then, the way that they stored things, the security measures they had, you could see that happening. But misplacing a body or bodies, that's something that, you know, kind of makes you scratch your head a little bit. Yeah, especially because in a murder case, you're supposed to keep that case open one way or another until it's solved. So hopefully you would have that body there to, to work on the case. Nikki Costa eventually discovered that the unidentified remains were actually sent to forensic pathologist Dr. Clyde Collins Snow, 
in Oklahoma in 1977. Dr. Snow was involved in many high-profile investigations, including the JFK assassination. He also examined the remains of the Oklahoma City bombing victims in 1995. In 1978, Snow had sent the Jane Doe remains back to the Clark County coroner. It turned out that Snow was so meticulous with records that he saved his tracking information for the delivery. This made for some serious confusion for Nikki after finding out that the remains had been returned to her office. It was one day in December 2011 when Nikki was examining what she thought was Carol Valenzuela's skull. Nikki noticed that the teeth didn't match Carol's dental records. So on a hunch, she had experts review the dental records and they confirmed that the skull and remains on file for Carol Valenzuela were not Carol's, but instead were those of the Jane Doe. So there was some type of clerical error that resulted in the unidentified remains being archived under Carol Valenzuela's case number. In February, 2012, Nikki sent the remains to a lab. And then a few months later, she got back a full profile with enough information to do DNA comparisons. News of the Jane Doe and Nikki's work circulated and caught the attention of a woman named Reba Morrison. Her younger sister, 17-year-old Martha Morrison, disappeared in 1974. Reba had done some digging and found out that Martha was never officially reported missing. Martha vanished without a trace from Portland, Oregon in September 1974. At around the time she vanished, Martha had been living with a man that no one really knew much about. He was described as a light-skinned African-American with a thin build. Martha was last seen leaving her apartment following an argument with this man. Reba wondered if this unidentified Jane Doe might actually be her missing sister, Martha. Law enforcement officials took a swab sample from the inside cheeks of both Reba and Martha's half-brother, Michael Morrison, for DNA comparisons. But Nikki was told by the experts that she needed more DNA because what they used for the comparisons was weak and the results were labeled as inconclusive. The problem was Martha's parents were both deceased and other family members were resistant to submit to the cheek swab. So Nikki had to try to find something else. The Eugene, Oregon Police Department helped Nikki hunt down Martha and Reba's mother's tissue sample, which was on file at a Springfield, Oregon medical facility. It was only days away from being destroyed but they got to it in time and they had it tested. The results came back that her DNA was consistent with Jane Doe's DNA, but it still wasn't conclusive. The authorities took the drastic measure of exhuming the body of Reba and Martha's father, who died in 1976. The National Center for Missing and Exploited Children offered to pay for it, and Reba Morrison agreed to the exhumation. On June 11, 2015, Martha's father's body was exhumed, and a DNA sample was sent to a lab. This time, the results were positive. The sample was 59.7 million times more likely that Jane Doe was Martha Morrison than any other unrelated Caucasian person, with a probability of relatedness of 99.99%. Nikki Costa was relentless and persistent in identifying Jane Doe, and as a result, Reba finally could give her sister, Martha, a proper memorial. I got to talk to her sister after they found her remains because her parents had passed. And, you know, it was a nice feeling to talk to her and know, know that, you know, they finally found her sister. Before police became convinced that Warren Forrest was likely a serial killer, at one time, authorities thought Carol Valenzuela was a victim of Ted Bundy. But when they asked him, Bundy denied killing her. Now, the one thing police were confident of is that whoever killed Carol had also killed Martha Morrison. In 2017, detectives took blood that was found on Warren Forrest's dart gun, and they had it tested. DNA that was extracted determined that the blood belonged to Martha Morrison. So now police could tie him to two more murders. In 2018, they announced that he could face more murder charges and may have killed up to six more women.
between the years of 1971 and 1974, Forrest reportedly told his therapist he had a total of 13 victims, including Krista K. Blake, but he refused to name them. He also refused to say where he dumped their bodies, most likely because he could still be tried for those crimes. He did a whole sexual history timeline. It was part of his thing. In order to ever be released, he had to go through this sexual therapy program. And one of the requirements in that was to list his sexual history timeline. Well, he described 13 victims in that in that timeline. I believe it was 13 anyway. And he had to list their ages and his age. That's the only details he'd give, except he went on to say that only out of all the victims, only one escaped or one got away. Never used the word murder because he knows if he did that, he could be charged. But he admitted to raping and torturing them all. And he wouldn't give identifying information. So... In 2017, the parole board gave him an additional five years for withholding the truth. Since they announced the DNA on the dart gun that was actually Martha's blood, the prosecutor has been working on trying to bring together a case, but of course it doesn't happen overnight. Although Warren Forrest remained tight-lipped about all of his victims, we can deduce some of his possible or likely victims based on time frame, MO, and other details. As we mentioned, Jamie Grissom was most likely his first victim. 18-year-old Barbara Ann Derry disappeared on February 11, 1972. She was last seen hitchhiking. Her body was found in a cistern at Old Cedar Creek Grist Mill, east of Woodland, Washington, on March 29, 1972. She died from a single stab wound to the heart. Initially, police considered whether the remains belonged to D.B. Cooper until it was discovered the victim was female. The area where Barbara's remains were found had been heavily searched by the Army and FBI for Cooper, who parachuted from a hijacked Northwest Airlines jetliner with $200,000 in ransom money four months earlier. Cooper is believed to have parachuted in the area east of Woodland. And Morph, a lot of people that have listened to me over the years, they know that D.B. Cooper is one of those cases for me that I find extremely intriguing. I covered him on an episode of True Crime All Time Unsolved. It's just one of those cases. There's so many strange, peculiar aspects to it that most people find it very mysterious. And and it's one of those that I think the online sleuths have a lot to say about because there are so many different suspects. It's one of those cases where people have come out and said, okay, my dad was D.B. Cooper, my relative was D.B. Cooper. There've been books written about it. It's just overall just an extremely fascinating case. That's one of those cases that really grabs your attention and and makes you think. And that area where he jumped out over Washington in the conditions he jumped out in were pretty rough. So, you know, I don't know how much detail you went into about that area, but that's one thing that's worth talking about is it's not an area where someone would want to parachute out and have a safe landing well and and so speaking of that it's something that people have tried to recreate literally the conditions the altitude the jumping out you know they've run mock scenarios of you know where he would have most likely landed it's just a fascinating case but getting back to talking about other potential victims of warren forest diane sue gilchrist was 14 years old when she disappeared on May 29th, 1974 from Vancouver, Washington. She was last seen outside her residence, getting into a blue van driven by an unidentified man. Now, there's not a lot of details available in her case, but I think anytime you're talking about someone getting into a blue van, it's hard not to link that crime to Warren Forrest. Gloria Nadine Knudsen disappeared on May 31, 1974, from Vancouver. On May 9, 1978, a set of bones were found near Lacamas Lake, where Daria Whiteman was attacked and left for dead. The victim had been hogtied and partially clothed. The bones were later identified as belonging to Gloria. So in talking about all of these possible victims of Warren Forrest, they all disappeared from 
essentially the same area. The murder victims were found in Clark County parks. Several of the victims were seen getting into a blue van. We know Warren Forrest drove a blue van during this time frame in 2011, 2014, and 2017. Warren Forrest was denied parole. Detectives believe that the time and location of his victims' disappearances and abductions shows a pattern of a man who acts out when he cannot control his urges. And Forrest pretty much agreed at the 2017 parole hearing when he said, quote, I more or less felt that my only option was a distraction and the distraction I chose was deviant fantasies. And my crime was living out one of those fantasies. Warren Forrest has only been convicted of Krista K. Blake's murder. To date, he hasn't been charged with any additional crimes and remains locked behind bars in a Washington prison. Hopefully, if Warren Forrest did commit any of these other murders, he'll one day be linked to and face justice for these crimes. Maybe if that day comes, people like Starr will finally learn the truth about what happened to their loved ones almost 50 years ago. One thing we asked Starr was if she or Jamie knew any of the victims or knew Warren Forrest. They did a whole crime synopsis, at, like in 78, of all the girls that they believe Forrest killed. And it started out with my sister and it went from there. And one of the girls went to my high school. I didn't really know her personally, but she went to our high school. And so we, I have friends that knew them. You know, we all were kind of in the same kind of circle, but I didn't know them personally, no. But I have friends that knew some of them. We didn't know at the time, but I I didn't personally know him. But I found out that his parents' house was less than two miles from us. I found this out, you know, 35 years later. And it was a house that we walked past all the time to go to the store. And he, by this time, he was when Jamie disappeared, he was 22, and she was 16. So he had moved out from his parents' home. But as children, we walked by there hundreds of times because that's how we got to the store. So I do believe she knew him. Absolutely, I believe she knew him. And I, he had a lot of reasons to be in the neighborhood, and I believe he came along and It was really, really cold that day, and I think he said, hey, you want to ride? And she knew him, and she took it, because I can remember our last conversation that summer, and one of them was, she told me, don't you ever hitchhike. She said, if if I find out you've hitchhiked, I'll kick your ass, is what she said. So I know she wouldn't have been hitchhiking. She wouldn't have accepted a ride from someone she didn't know. At this point, almost 50 years after Jamie Grissom vanished, her sister Star has come to terms with what most likely happened to her. She wants to move on from the man that she believes abducted and murdered Jamie, and her dream would be to find Jamie's remains and give her a proper memorial. We're just waiting for him to get charged so that he can get convicted of one more murder And he will never come up for parole because as it is since 2011, every two to three years, he comes up for parole. And then the families have to go and and speak out against it. And it's very annoying because we all know he killed more than one girl. But his reasoning is, oh, I've only been convicted of one. So I deserve to come up for parole every two to three years. When we all know he killed more, but until he's charged with another one, he can keep coming up for parole. Luckily, you know, the Washington State Parole Board refuses to release him. It bothers me that he just threw it out somewhere and God knows only where he knows. And and I have forgiven him for killing her. I really have. Because I think, you know, there's something very mentally wrong with him. But he's clever like a fox and he knows what he's doing. When he withholds the truth, and that's why that part I'm not going to forgive him for, and I won't forget, because that's the worst thing he has done. Besides murdering these girls, that's the worst thing he's done. I get choked up. Well, it's been hard, and especially, you know, the first five years, I cried all the time. 
you know, and you know, it kind of turned me against religion, I guess you would say, too. And, you know, I was brought up to believe, you know, God's responsible for everything. And at so at that time, I kind of turned against religion and didn't go to church anymore. I haven't ever since. But, you know, I've come to realize God can't control us, and He didn't control what happened to her. And He can, he can only try and appeal to Warren's heart and have him release the truth. But that's the best he can do. And I understand that now, but it was really hard. And, you know, I think of all that we missed together. And she had just turned 16. She didn't get a chance to get out there in the world and what she could have become and how different both of our lives would have been. And I think the end of that clip, Morph, it gets to you. Right. We're talking about something that happened, like we said, 50 years ago. But even though so much time has passed, Star still gets choked up talking about Jamie. And I think that goes along with other victims as well. Other stories that we've talked about, time doesn't erase the memories of these people's loved ones and shouldn't. But I think on top of that, it also doesn't erase the pain. The pain stays with them their entire lives. And it goes to show you what type of havoc, what type of pain that these monsters inflict, not only on their victims. Those those stories are horrible. We cover them. We have to. But when you talk about the victims' families, they are impacted in ways that a lot of us can't even imagine and they're impacted for the rest of their lives. Yeah, there's that old saying, time heals all wounds, but I don't know if that's true. Not totally anyway. And to have all these years go by and still be wondering exactly what happened to your loved one, I can't even imagine that feeling. Well, and I think you said it, right? I, I don't think that statement is true, especially in these cases where the victim's families don't have the knowledge of exactly what happened. I mean, how can you ever, I hate to use the word closure, but how can you ever have any type of closure when you still don't know exactly what happened? Add on top of that, that you don't have your loved one's remains. You've never been able to really properly grieve, hold a memorial service, bury your loved one and and have a place that you know, you can go and visit and talk to them. It's just, it's heartbreaking all around. And then, you know, as we wrap up this episode, you talk about this guy, Warren Forrest. I mean, all the evidence more points to the fact that this guy was most likely a serial killer. Undoubtedly, he was a bad guy. You go back to his trial in 1975, he's found legally insane. Fast forward to his murder trial in 1979, I think it was. We didn't have all the details, but my assumption is his defense mounted a similar argument. But in that case, he was found guilty and sent to prison. But as so often happens, right, when you talk about one case, there's a number of other cases that are tied, that are linked in some way. And it makes me wonder if this guy hadn't been caught, if he was responsible for the murders of these girls we've talked about, how many more victims might he have out there and how many might he have had if he was never caught in the first place? That's really scary. Yeah, I think that's always a a question that you have to ask. Police have linked him to a certain number, but I think in most cases more if there are many more victims that you know, he's not going to bring them up. Police haven't asked him about them. Police haven't come out and linked him to them, but that's just because they haven't found the connection. There could be five, 10, 15, 20 more. We don't know. And more, if we titled this episode, Jamie Grissom, we did talk about Jamie quite a bit. We could have just as easily titled it Warren Forrest because we talked about him probably even more and his potential victims, but we were able to get the interview with Star, who helped shed light on the case. So more if you and I both agree, 
you know, where we can focus on the victims. That's what we want to do. Yeah. We're going to talk about the killers. People want to hear about them, their background, what they did. And sometimes you have to focus on them in a case, but where you can. And I think this was a decision that we made. We chose to spend a lot of time focusing on Jamie Grissom. Special thanks to Star Laura for joining us in this episode. Thanks also goes out to the Columbia News in Vancouver for allowing us to use audio in this episode. And to Debbie Buck at TrueCrimeDiva.com for writing and research assistance in this episode. As always, if you haven't done so, take a minute, go out, give us a five-star rating. If you love this show, that helps us out tremendously. And keep telling your friends. Chances are you have a lot of friends who like true crime. If you haven't told them about criminology yet, please do so. Word of mouth is huge in the podcasting industry. We very much appreciate it. And if you'd like to find us on social media, we're on Twitter with the handle at CriminologyPod. You can also find us on Facebook by searching for Criminology Podcast. And you can join our Facebook discussion group, which is Criminology Podcast Discussion Fans. All right, Morris, that is it for another episode of Criminology. We'll be back with everyone next Saturday night with an all-new episode. So until then, this is Mike. And Morf. And we'll talk to you next week. Take care, everyone.